This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the podcast, the host of Vox's Switched on Pop podcast will explain why pop music matters. What on the surface was a really kind of frivolous pop song was actually so carefully constructed. We'll hear how a cover took Death Cab for Cutie's song, I'll Follow You Into the Dark, to another level. You're approaching a song that's so amazing. How are you going to make this great? And by gum, she does it. But first, a conversation with Angel Olsen. Angel Olsen performed live at KEXP last week. I chatted with her about her latest album called All Mirrors and how her rising fame has tested her friendships and relationship. So your album starts with the song Lark, and it showcases synths and this kind of symphonic string section, or what sounds like symphonic string section. Um, and it also flaunts kind of your vocal power and range. You know, you go from kind of a light and soft timbre to kind of belting emotional tones. Can you tell me um, what this song is about, Lark? I, it took several years to finish it because I wasn't sure how I felt about it as a song, and then I created different songs within it, and then the themes behind that one just kind of, for me, were about, I don't know, sort of being a female, being a musician and trying to like pursue my dreams, and more specifically, like trying to pursue music and not, you know, not feeling supported feeling a, a com- more of a competitive vibe with the people that should have been supporting me and, and people sort of promising that they could care about me and love me and also support what I do and how complicated that is in actuality for a lot of people. Well, like being supportive yet at the same time, I'm sure like when you have to go off on tour, it's yeah. like, but why aren't you here for me? And also you're just meeting people constantly all over the world and they're all interesting. And it really takes a, a very confident person to to just be like, I trust this person and this human and somebody who is willing to search and keep searching. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's always a conversation circulating around. It's uh, not just me who deals with this. Obviously, um, men deal with this as well in bands. But I think for me, it, it was just kind of about, yeah, having a partner that said that they supported what I wanted to do. But when it came to when I actually was successful and starting to become successful, how how problematic that was yeah. for a lot of reasons, which I found to be really eye-opening. As you mentioned, I'm sure everyone kind of goes through this, but I think there is a different dynamic, I think, if you're a woman, you know, and you're yeah. in a relationship and like, hey, I'm bringing a lot in a lot of cash this month. I'm doing well in my career, you know, and yeah. that might be intimidating. Yeah, I think it is probably – but it's also about deconstructing the, what you think a traditional relationship should be like, you know? And instead of uh, feeling emasculated by, by that, uh, just kind of like finding what you love in your life and accepting that that's what somebody else does with their life. You have two songs um, on this album, All Mirrors, 
that seem to be about, you know, tested friendships. I mean, I think we're talking a little bit about a relationship in the song Lark, a romantic relationship. But, you know, you have other songs that are kind of about friendships and how friendships and even just your personal life can shift once you kind of hit a certain level of fame. One of them is Impasse. And the other is summer. And all those people I thought knew me well. After all that time they couldn't tell. How I lost myself was just a shell. Can you talk about the inspiration behind these songs and what you were observing around you in your life when you wrote them? In impasse, it's, you know, I think I was dealing with a lot of uh a lot of friends thinking that they understood what my life was like and that I had it really easy and that I always had it easy because I was now a famous musician. And, um, yeah, and just people assuming things about your life because of because of how things turn out. And I had to learn how to not care anymore, you know. And it's hard because I really – I wouldn't be a performer if I didn't somewhat care about what people think, you know, but – Especially my friends, you know, seeing what they assume about me. And, you know, it's it's very easy to, to talk uh, about a musician being uh, chaotic and to complain about how, pre, you know, they're prima donnas and, and how uh, they don't think about anybody else but themselves. It's very easy to go there. You know, for me, I was always, I've always been somebody who is like checking in with people constantly, all the time. What I realize is that at a certain point, people have to take agency, and I can't be in charge of everyone's feelings all the time. But also, Not in maybe my work they, they weren't checking in with you necessarily. No, no one was, you know, because I'm the artist, so they how could I have any issues? They thought you had a support issues? system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess what I learned is that I just, I think I just have to let people know that, hey, like, I have feelings as well. And this is a business and it's, let's try not to take it personally, you know. And it's, it's hard, I think, especially with people who are my friends who I don't get to see that often. And, and I just wish I could share the, the back, you know, behind the scenes with people sometimes just to let them know it's not, you know. Uh, it's work just like any other kind of work, you know, and I love doing it. I'm so glad that I can do it. It is better than working at, you know, I don't know. In the past, I was a barista, you know. But at the same time, there is something about working a crappy job and feeling really just as inspired and just as pure about what you're making. And there's something really special about that, too, because nobody yet knows about it. And and it hasn't been uh, warped and um, manipulated by any industry yet. So there's something about that, too, that's really special. I'm just like, for me, it took a long time for me to forgive myself for enjoying my success, you know? But also, like, the irony of with success comes a bit of isolation sometimes, you know? Yeah. That you're that a lot of people know who you are, they know about you, they come to your shows, yet 
you can be in the tour bus and be like, why aren't my friends checking in? Why aren't, yeah. you know, the people that mattered before all this happened here at this moment, yeah. you know? And it'd be cool if I could relate to my fans on a personal level like that. But the trouble with that is that fans just hear your voice and your music and they think that that's your identity. And that's just, that's a different identity than who I actually am. So I think that is the balance that's always tricky for a musician or somebody who does something where they have to travel all the time is to find the people that ground you in your life. And sometimes it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It could just be a few. But Do you feel like you have them? I do, yeah. And I think that that's what summer is kind of about is like getting through all that and realizing that I didn't have to have everything. Um, you know, I didn't have to hate people for assuming things about me. You know, I didn't have to think about spending time with people like that in my life anymore either. And all those people I thought knew me well After all that time they couldn't tell How I lost myself was just a shell There was nothing left that I could lose I'm speaking with Angel Olsen on Sound and Vision on KEXP. So on your album, All Mirrors, you have quieter songs. There's a song, Tonight, where you're almost whisper singing. And you've said that even though you're singing quiet in this song, it's your strongest song. It's about moving on from a relationship and realizing that you like your life as you sing without you. I like the light And then there's a song, Endgame, where you have kind of similar whispery vocals. Um, in this song, you're saying that you need more than love. You've said that you want someone who actually listen, listens, who actually understands where you're coming from, who speaks your language. I needed more, needed more than love from you. Sonically, when you're writing these songs, do you make a conscious decision how you present your voice, whether you're giving it a lot of power, a lot of, you know, let's say you're belting, or if you're getting quiet and whispery, do you kind of make a conscious decision how you'll present your your voice based on the message you're trying to send or the story that you're telling? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those songs, what they have in common is a sort of defeat, you know, like, look. Endgame is more like, I'm really deeply, deeply disappointed in you. And uh, I also really love you, you know? And that's so sad. That I, I feel could, like instead of know? yelling, the whispering is always more powerful. Like if you're in a fight, rather yeah. than yelling, and that's what I meant by yeah. saying, like, I'm not one to be like, this is the strongest song I've ever written. But I think that tonight, when I said tonight was this one of the strongest, I felt, I felt that way because when we recorded it in the studio, Congleton reacted and was just like, that is like such, like if you listen to the lyrics to that song, it's just like, it, it crush, whoever this is about, it just it crushes them, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, let's not talk about who that's about. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I think tonight is is more just I'm at peace with 
I, I used to think that I wouldn't have a reality without this person, and I do. And in fact, there's something really nice about finding yourself and spending the time with yourself, you know, instead of jumping from relationship to a relationship, like really learning how to just be with yourself is so important. And it's been said to me so many times in my life until it finally stuck, you know. And so I think that's what I mean by that, the strength of that song. But when you're singing, do you feel like um, you have a different emotional connection to a song, whether you're belting or being really quiet? Does, does the way in which you sing bring out different emotions from you? Maybe so, yeah. I think on Chance, for example, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, it's almost like I'm, like I'm having one last cry before I'm like, this is all I need, you know, for me. And so it needed something that was a little bit more dramatic. I mean, you wrap up the album with the song Chance, which is such a beautiful song. Um, and it, it almost kind of harkens back to like an era of like lounge singers where crooning is described of singing in the 20s through the 50s. And I read that you were raised by older uh, adoptive parents. I believe mm-hmm. they're in their 50s. No, they're were much born? older. <laughs> what, how old were they when you were born? Oh, man, when I was born, I don't know. Well, my I can't keep track, honestly. My mom's probably great. She probably is happy that I can't keep track. Um, (laughs) My mom's in her 70s and my dad's in his 80s. And they're about 11 years apart from each other. Okay. And you're in your early 30s. So they would have been like 50s when you were born. Yeah. Yeah. So much older, I'm assuming, compared to all your peers um, at the time. And I'm wondering, by having older parents, were you exposed to kind of an older genre of music compared to your peers growing up? And do you think, if that's the case, if that exposure impacted your music you're making today? You know, they listen to a lot of modern music too, but I think I just sort of, uh, I tried to to relate to them and I would go through their photo books and stuff and and, and imagine what kind of music they would have listened to, what kind of life they must have led or in their youth. And I think that's what, initially got me into the nostalgia of of that kind of music, you know. I've been speaking with Angel Olsen. She performed live at KEXP this week during her tour. Uh, she was touring her latest album, All Mirrors. Angel Olsen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Angel Olsen recorded two versions of her latest record, All Mirrors. The first was a stripped-down version she recorded in the rainy coastal town of Anacortes, Washington. That version of the record is said to be released in 2020. But the version that's out now was produced by John Congleton. KEXP recently spoke with John Congleton about working on that record. Here he is breaking down the production of the titled track, All Mirrors. I guess what I remember about that song was the original demo that Angel sent me was a much truncated version of the song. Essentially, it was a a verse, a chorus, a verse, and a chorus, and then the song ended. And it was just sort of a quick little meditation. And um, there was um, some idea that came about at some point uh, 
to go into sort of a instrumental section at the end and I don't don't recall whose idea that was but it sort of slowly turned into this moment where it went into it just kind of submerged into some deep science fiction you know there was all kinds of new chords that were being written I would assume that Angel was like let's just take this to cuckoo town here and it really harmonically was going quite adventurous and um, my comment, uh, the one thing that I can say that I suggested for that song was like, if you're going to take us to this crazy place, I think you need to go back to that chorus one more time at the end and really rock it. So, so like, I was like, let's just make this a big triumphant song because where they had gotten to that point was like, it was going to go off into this sort of Star Trek world and take you this totally different place, which was exciting. But I kind of felt like if you're going to take me there, bring me back home so that's how we kind of developed this big explosion at the end where the drums are kind of going for it and and you're just sort of delivering this almost springsteenian uh reimagination of the chorus This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. A new book by the hosts of the Switched on Pop podcast was released on Friday. It's called Switched on Pop, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters. I'm joined by the podcast hosts and authors of this book, Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding. They'll be breaking down a few pop songs and why they matter. Hello to you both. Hi, Emily. Great to be here. Hello. So as you might know, KEXP is not a top 40 kind of pop station, (laughs) more of an indie vibe. (laughs) So, and I understand that the two of you weren't always pop music appreciators. What was the catalyst for each of you to kind of, you know, switch and, and start appreciating pop music a little more? Yeah, you know, well, first of all, we are big fans of KXP. We're always on YouTube watching the live sessions. We're just, even though we're pop fanatics, doesn't mean we don't have love for for the KEXP programming. Uh, But I will say that I think the moment that was our, like, conversion moment um, was when we were listening to Carly Rae Jepsen's 2012 hit, Call Me Maybe. We were driving down uh, the California coast with our spouses. Uh, they had relegated us to the back seat to, so as not to have to endure our geekery. Uh, and we uh, were just exploring the ways that this, what on the surface was a really kind of frivolous pop song, was actually so carefully constructed. And I think after that moment, we came away with a whole new appreciation for a genre of music that previously we hadn't really taken seriously. That was like our our pop conversion, I would say. And you actually write about that in the very beginning of this book. And then if you go on to read the book, you break down nearly 20 different pop songs that, that kind of came to be in the last decade. Um, and you talk about you know elements of musicality that made each song unique, whether that be it was written in mixed meter or uses melody, harmony, or vocal tones in an interesting way. And I have to say, I was a music major in college, and I did not like music theory. But you have a lot of music theory in this book, but the way that you 
go about teaching people music theory and, you know, all of the vocabulary around music, like things like timbre and meter and all those things and describing how music works technically was really engaging. Uh, plus, you got a lot of some you got to put in some music history in there. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but I wanted to also break down a few songs from this book. Um, the first is Sia's song Chandelier mm. um, for for this song, you focused on the timbre of her voice, yeah. you know, what her voice sounds like, um, how it's portrayed. So let's first take a listen to a clip of that song. Can you walk us through how she changes the timbre of her voice in this song? This is Charlie. For those of us who might not be as familiar Timbre is what we describe as the texture or the color of sound. It's how we distinguish one voice from another or one instrument from another. And it's it's often the most important experience in popular music, but also the least theorized. We don't have a really good language to describe timbre, and we're often having to grab sort of textural qualities to uh, metaphorize what we're hearing. Sia is a absolute master of timbre. She manipulates her voice to meet the message of the song uh, and, and change it throughout in order to demonstrate uh, whatever's going on in the lyric. And so, you know, Sia has this very rough voice. It, it has a, a a real rasp to it. And when she's singing about swinging from a chandelier, this reckless but also celebratory act you can hear that in her actual vocal quality in the timbre it is both her her voice uh is swinging high up into a super uh top of her range very high pitch just as it's cracking and rasping and almost breaking sort of metaphorizing that shattering of a chandelier swinging through the air As we talk about, you know, Sia, we're, we're talking a lot about her timbre right now, but outside of just her voice, I mean, she herself was a songwriter almost first, and then she kind of fell into this pop stardom, yet she wanted anonymity, and so, which is why you see her with her black and white, you know, wig always in front of her face to kind of, you know, hide who she really is. So outside of just her music, do you feel like her persona or path to stardom is unique in the pop world? Yeah, I think she's she's very unique. And, uh, you know, the genesis of her uh, switch from songwriter to performer also points to uh, a lot of biases uh, in, in the songwriting world because that was not her choice. She was kind of thrust into the spotlight after a producer she uh, was working with uh, kept her scratch vocal on a demo recording. Uh, without telling her so she didn't really have the agency to make that decision to step in front of the spotlight and I think you can see a lot of her uh, decisions that you were talking about in terms of obscuring her face kind of as a reaction to that but in doing so she has created this uh, really remarkable persona uh, that now is is really unique within the landscape of pop and I think she's able to do that 
uh, because of these vocal qualities that we were talking about, because she has this timbre that is so distinctive and, and so compelling that you don't even need to see her face to enjoy her music. I'm speaking with Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding. They're the authors of the new Switched on Pop book, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters. I want to talk about a few more songs you discuss in this book. Um, Another one is um, Justin Timberlake's use of what you call text painting. Um, Tell us about how he uses the so-called text painting in his song, What Goes Around Comes Around, and, and other songs of his. Yeah, you know, we always talk about when you're only listening to the lyric, you're only hearing half the song. One of the best ways to listen is to think about how are the lyric and the music connecting. And one of the best ways to hear this is through this idea of text painting, which Justin Timberlake is an absolute master of. Mm -hmm. He loves text painting. And we can look at the chorus of what goes around, comes around as, an, as a perfect example. Uh, perhaps, Maestro, if you don't mind uh, singing the lead uh, part of the chorus. <clears throat> I don't know if this is the right key, but I'm going to go for it. What goes around, goes around, goes around, comes all the way back around. Hold for applause. Okay, continue, Charles. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, and what you noticed, or maybe didn't quite tune into, but here's what we're going to talk about. The, the melody starts on one note and descends down, 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 rises up, and then comes back to the same note that it started on. So what's happened? What's he singing? What goes around comes back around. So the melody is actually mirroring the arc of the message in the lyric. And what a fun way to bring that music to life. That That is one of our best and favorite examples of text painting. And he he's done this in other songs of his, hasn't he? Yeah, you you can hear it in a, a more recent hit like "Can't Stop the Feeling," uh, where <laughs> it's it it has a line. Um, it goes electric wavy when I turn it on. And at the moment that he says electric wavy, the piano that has been accompanying him like kind of goes all wavy and tremolo and it has this kind of scattered effect so it's like kind of reinforcing the message of the the lyrics that he's singing right there i got this feeling inside my bones it goes electric wavy when i turn it on and even going back to one of his first big hits, Cry Me a River, something you might not remember about that song is that it actually starts with the sound of running water, like a like a river overflowing its banks. So even before you get a single lyric or note in that song, you are primed to like get this central metaphor of crying a river. Taylor Swift is someone who has a command in the music industry. She's reinvented herself from country to pop. She writes her own music. And as a friend of mine has said, you know, every public event she does is like a masterclass in how stars should interact with and utilize Mm. the power of fans. Um, In this book, you focus on uh, Taylor Swift's use of what you call the tea drop. What (laughs) is the tea drop and how does she use it in her music? Uh, rather than explain it, I'll just sing it for you. The T-drop is a three-note descending motive that sounds like this. Da, da, da. 
And this motive is kind of thread through so many of her compositions, uh, even as she changes her musical style from album to album. One thing that remains is the presence of that melodic motive. Uh, it shows up in a song like Mean. I can't sing, but all you are is me. And then you can also hear it in the track State of Grace. As well in one of her biggest hits, You Belong With Me. So even though Taylor Swift is someone who I think is often held up and as an example of how sort of artificial and manufactured a lot of popular music is, we love kind of isolating this melodic tea drop in her music because it reveals what uh, what compositional control she has over her repertoire. It also serves as a, a, a kind of consistency of identity throughout her music as she's known to shapeshift from genre to genre, right? Throughout every album, you're going to hear this tea drop. We think of it as almost a melodic signature. And so you might not experience that consciously, but subconsciously, that little line connects you to Taylor Swift throughout all of her recordings. One last song I want to talk about is Beyonce's Love on Top. Um, in this chapter um, in, in your new book, Switched on Pop, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters, you, you focus on this song, this this concept of modulation, what other people might call key changes in this mm. song. Can you talk about how modulation as well as nostalgia for Whitney Houston kind of made this song? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Love on Top is absolutely one of our oh, favorite it's tracks. It's so good. And uh, part of what makes it so effective is its use of nostalgia. It's, it's a song which, while thoroughly contemporary, is also looking to the past for its reference. We can hear that in the actual production, which sounds sort of 90s-ish, mm -hmm. definitely referencing... New Jack Swing. Yeah, that yeah. whole era. And... But but the vocal quality is is really Whitney Houston, and we can hear a particular allusion to her uh, in the sort of outro section of Love on Top. What happens is every single time Beyonce sings the line, you put my love on top, the song rises in key. It modulates, as we say. And she does it not just once, not just twice. She does this a total of five times. And what that's doing is it's both bringing this song to life. It's saying it's literally topping itself every single time she sings that line. It's also, in a Whitney Houston sort of way, showing off the upper register of her voice. Uh, you know, Beyonce, of course, has one of the most incredible diva vocals, and this allows her to, to, to truly shine. And, and also, I think about, you know, Whitney Houston's song, I Want to Dance with Somebody, where there's that big key change kind of in the middle yeah. towards the end of the song, which is great. So when the night falls, 
I think we we quote uh, Beyonce actually uh, saying, uh, you know, Whitney is one of her biggest inspirations. So we we think of this song as like her homage to to the influence of Houston on her. Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding, again, the title of your book is called Switched on Pop, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters. So in summary, you know, you've you've put this book out into the world. Why would you say pop music matters? I think pop music matters because it's regardless of whether you love or hate a song, we are arguing that it's worth listening to and trying to understand this music because it says so much uh, about the world around us. Like a good example might be the, the very first chapter of our book, which is about the song Hey Ya. That song is one of the top wedding songs, according to Spotify it appears on more wedding playlists than just about any other song of the past decade. And yet, when you listen to the lyrics of the song carefully, it's not a very happy song. It's really a song about how no relationship can ever last. Nevertheless, it seems to be what people want to put on when they're celebrating (laughs) their lasting love. Why is that? I think in order to understand this kind of dissonance, you have to go into the, the meter of the song, how Andre... Benjamin arranges the underlying pulses and every once in a while introduces this odd measure of two as opposed to four pulses, which even if you're not like conscious of it, makes you feel a little uncomfortable and is that note of, of darkness that, is, that the song is kind of hiding. So I think that's a great example of how listening really closely to a song and kind of learning more about its construction can illuminate some aspect of it that you'd never noticed before. I've been speaking with Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding. They are the hosts of the Switched on Pop podcast. They just released a book called Switched on Pop, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters. Their book tour will make a stop at Seattle Town Hall on January 21st. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. And by the way, we have a broadcast version of this show that is two hours long. It airs from 7 till 9 a.m. each and every Saturday, Pacific time, here on KEXP in Seattle. And each week on the broadcast version of this show, we have a segment called Cover Me. It's where KEXP's Owen Murphy and Troy Nelson talk about their favorite cover songs. Here it is. Troy, I, I, I don't know where we're going with this. Owen, I'll follow you into the dark. Oh, come on. <laughs> Kill the music. The times are tough now. They're just getting tougher. The world is up and another cover me. Come on, Joy Nelson. Come on, baby, cover me. Cause I'm looking for Troy Nelson to find covers for KESP. All right, this is Cover Me on Sound and Vision right here on 90.3 FM KXP Seattle. My name is Owen Murphy, and you are... Troy Nelson. And, and Troy already spilled the beans of what song we're talking about here. <laughs> Go ahead and re-spill the beans, Troy. And we're talking about a beautiful, one of the most beautiful love songs, in my opinion, and that is Death Cab for Cuties, I'll Follow You Into the Dark. Now, 
it's we've done, I don't know, 20, 30 of these. Uh, each time we take a look at a cover and break it apart and talk about what makes it interesting. Play the original, play the cover. Um, and oftentimes there's a number of different approaches that an artist will take to a cover. Um, I had to write these down. Mm-hmm. So, for example, do you do the, the song is so great, you just do it the exact same. You don't change anything. Or you change it entirely. Or you modernize it. Maybe the song, the original, is dated sounding. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to me, Death Cab for Cuties, I'll Follow You Into the Dark, off of their 2005 album Plans, is nearly a perfect song. Uh, and I can't imagine approaching it uh, without trepidation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on approaching a song that is this great? You know, I, I love this because, you know, look at Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Who would ever cover anything from that? But then the Flaming Lips covered the entire record. So I like this fearlessness yeah. of covering a song that's already considered perfect. Yeah. And so I'm always interested to see what people do with it. You're right, though. If it's a, if it's a heavy song with lots of distortion and then you hear a cover of it where it's very beautiful. and very, yeah. I love when, when people have their own interpretation of a song, but this uh, cover by Mia Folick is just absolutely beautiful, and that's what we're talking about today. Right, and so would you mind telling the story of... um how this version that we hear off of Plans came to be? Yeah, I actually thought it was interesting when I first heard the song because it was so, it sounded so simple, just acoustic guitar and vocal. And then you find out that they were having some audio issues in the recording studio. And while Chris Walla, the producer, was trying to fix things, Ben Gibbard just picked up a guitar and started playing it. And Chris Walla was like, hey, wait a second and just recorded it that simply as is. There's very little done to it. There was a little DSing and there was a light compression, but other than that, it is as simple as it sounds. Well, right, and so I have never listened to a song and for one second thought about how it was recorded. Now, usually uh, most songs, when you hear them on a CD or a recording of some sort, there's multiple takes, there's multiple microphones, there's tons of stuff going on, there's edits, all this stuff. This is one microphone, uh, and in this case, an unbelievably great singer with a great message uh, and an acoustic guitar and, and a great song. And because of that, you get this right here. If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied, and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs, if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, and I'll follow you into the dark. Yeah, I just love the simplicity of the recording. Actually, reading that story about how they recorded it reminded me of Butch Vig during the Nirvana Nevermind sessions where they were recording something in the way and Kurt just laid down on a couch and they just put a microphone right up to him because they liked the the sort of silence and simplicity of that recording. And the recording that the, they did with Kurt there, they... Butch had to turn off everything in the entire building except for a few things because he could hear all the ambient noise uh, because Kurt was singing so quietly. All right, before we play the the Mia Folick version of I Will Follow You Into the Dark, the Death Cab for Cutie uh, cover, we got to hear that. Ribbons from the ceiling It's okay Yeah. 
yeah, you can just hear the intimacy and the simplicity. It's so beautiful. That's it, Both of those songs, the way they were recorded, remind me of each other. Well, right. And again, great singer, great song, great performance, uh, captured in a unique manner. Um, and, you know, you f- every time you listen to these songs, you get to kind of experience that. Again, it just uh, takes my breath away. It reminds me, so... Uh, 20-some-odd years ago, I was producing a college radio show for MTV. And artists would come through all the time, and I got to record the Friends of Dean Martinez, which are now Calexico, and, and Giant Sand, uh, 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 as well as, like, um, The Wedding Present came through once, and a bunch of amazing artists. Well, uh, an artist, these three artists came through, and I only heard of two of them. Mary Lou Lord was one of them. Uh, the other one was uh, uh, a folk singer named, uh, I think Frank is how uh, she pronounces it. Mm. Um, and the third one was someone I'd never heard of before, Elliot Smith. Mm. Um, and, it w- uh, and so I recorded all three of them, and Elliot, I think, was last. And the, those two stu- stayed in the room with us. And Elliot just picked up a really terrible-looking acoustic guitar uh, and started playing songs that he had written that hadn't, hadn't finished for Heat Miser, his pr- first band, uh, or his most famous band, I guess, or however you say that. Um, and... It just instantly, you, the the talent just poured out of you. I was like, I got chills. I'd never heard of the guy before, and it was incredible. See you later. See you later. If I see you at all. You know, and that's what these songs remind me of. So now you're 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 Mia Folic, right? You're approaching a song that's so amazing. How are you going to make this great? And by gum, she does it. It's, uh, I get chills hearing her version. Well, her voice is so amazing. Uh, she, you know, the female octaves take this song to a place that Ben Gibbard, uh, I don't know if he couldn't, he just didn't. His is wonderful. This is also wonderful. And Owen, before we play the song, I wanted to read a quote that Mia Folek said about this song. Mia Folek said, To me, the greatest songs are the ones that feel like they always existed, like they were just waiting out in the ether for someone to discover them. And I just love hearing that quote because I felt the same way about this song as she did when she first heard it. This is Cover Me. My name's Owen Murphy. I'm Troy Nelson, and you are listening to KEXP Seattle. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. It's now time for our listener question of the week. This week, we asked if there's a song you grew up listening to that you had a whole new appreciation for once you heard that song again as an adult. Here were some of the answers. Hi, I'm Matt, and I'm from Seattle. I grew up on Long Island listening to Billy Joel, Simon and Garfunkel, and the Beatles from my parents' music collection uh, before kind of building my own taste through uh, through the course of listening to the radio and getting into grunge. But recently I went back to Long Island for Thanksgiving to visit my parents who are now retired and dealing with a number of family issues, including uh, my dad's recent prostate cancer diagnosis and potentially the uh, sale of my childhood home in Long Island. For context, 
a few years back, my parents' uh, house was flooded through Superstorm Sandy. So uh, all of their possessions were were lost, and they have been uh, spending the last five years or so rebuilding their uh, their possessions. And now that um, that includes their music collection, which uh, is an important part of uh, of their lives and, and how they relax. Uh, my dad is definitely the product of the 50s, so he doesn't really have the uh, emotional capability to express how he feels, but he does so normally through his his actions and taking the time to spend with family and, and do things with them and for them. So when I came home, uh, I had listened to the Spotify playlist that I helped him set up uh, previously at, at, during a previous trip. Uh, to help replace that music collection. So when Paul Simon's Flip Slide and Away came on, as he was driving me to the airport to to drop me off and fly back to Seattle, it really helped encapsulate the type of uh, feelings and emotions that maybe he doesn't necessarily have the vocabulary to express, but allowed uh, to allowed the music to speak for itself. Slip slide and away. You know the nearer your destination, the more you slip sliding away. I know a man, he came from my hometown. He wore his passion for his woman like a thorny crown. Hello, this is Francois Lerve. I live in uh, Seattle, Washington. When I was uh, 14, I had, uh, as a teenager, I'd begun, as most teenagers, just lose a bit of respect for my parents and certainly their uh, taste in music. But then one day, uh, in a rare moment, alone with my uh, father in the car, he turned to me and asked me if I had ever heard of the group Jethro Tull, and I said no, and he uh, proceeded to uh, plug in a cassette and turn on the song Bure by Jethro Tull. I was stunned. It was something that I'd never heard before, and it opened up a door into a big wide world of music that I have continued to explore since. And it really was at that moment that that began, uh, that I was open to so much more in the world than my teenage judgmental mind had, uh, had allowed. And it continues today and is why KXP is such an important part of my life in it continuing that musical exploration. But I think more importantly at that point, it uh, renewed, helped me renew respect for my parents. And it was a humility, a uh, moment of humility in learning that uh, passing judgment too quickly in others might not be a good thing, that they have so much more to offer than we might think. And so uh, it was also a growing experience for me. All that because of a little song on a car ride. Aaron and I'm from Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, and I want to tell a story about one of my family's favorite songs. So my mom was an old hippie and she was born and raised in Iowa. Uh, one of her favorite artists is It's a Beautiful Day, which is this psychedelic rock band from the 60s. And she had their album on a record, 
but it was long lost. And, you know, back in Iowa, before the age of the internet, we scoured music stores looking for a copy of the CD. And when we finally got our hands on one, it totally became our soundtrack. Um, growing up, I was especially fond of the first track, which is Whitebird. So in 2015, I moved to Seattle from the Midwest and one cloudy, rainy January Saturday here in the Pacific Northwest, I was listening to that first track and singing all the words because of course, by now, I know it by heart. And the song starts, white bird in a golden cage on a winter's day in the rain. And suddenly it hit me, this song is about Seattle. It has to be, right? So sure enough, with a quick search, I found that that song had in fact been written in Seattle. I further found that the little known band, It's a Beautiful Day, had been a contender for the famous Woodstock lineup, only to lose in a coin toss to none other than Santana. Due to a series of unfortunate events, they never quite gained the fame of other bands from that era. But to me, they're just as good, if not better. Just listen to those fiddle solos. They're fantastic. My mom has since retired and she joined us here in Washington State. It's super far from where she grew up. And now our favorite album from home connects us to this place that's unfamiliar and brings a lot of comfort, especially on a winter's day in the rain. Thanks to everyone for sharing your story. They wrote in at soundandvision at kexp.org. And here's next week's listener question that I would love for you to write in and share your stories. Uh, The question will be, what is a Christmas song that makes you nostalgic, that brings you right back to a special moment or time around the holiday season? What is that song and what's the memory associated with it? Write us your answer at soundandvision at kexp.org, and your story might be used in next week's listener question segment. And now for the final question of the show. Why does music matter? Here's Angel Olson. I think that music has the power to change your mood and to change your state of mind, and I think that's a really powerful tool to getting in a good mood and getting throughout your day and doing things that you care about in life. That was Sound and Vision. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can also give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks so much for listening.